Welcome aboard, um, all of you. Um, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Peter Apps. I'm a, a columnist for Reuters, um, and I'm also the executive director for the project for the study of the 21st century, a think tank, virtual think tank. I'm not, aren't all, think, all think tanks are currently virtual, but we were a virtual think tank first. Um, that um, has been running since 20, uh, well, 2014. We were founded in 2015. We started proper kind of operations. And um, we exist to look at the big and interesting questions of the 21st century. A century that is now terrifyingly about a fifth, well, more than a fifth over. We're now in the year 2021. And the year 2021 is itself um, more than a third over, or at least it will be um, once we get to the, this weekend. Um, so we're having a bit of a quick look at particularly the year where things have been, what, what, we've, what we've seen over the last four months, where we stand on a bunch of things, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic fairly high on the list, but there is other stuff going on as well. Um, and um, we're gonna, we've got a really excellent panel to, uh, to talk us through those things. So um, in order um, that they're going to speak, we've got Joe Stockman, who was formerly a, a strategic communications advisor at the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet in New Zealand, country did very well. Uh, we've got Victoria Macaness. Uh, a politics and defence commentator from the UK, a country that started out doing really quite badly, but is now doing well if you look at the vaccine side of life. Um, we've got Sir Michael Lee, uh, former senior EU official and now professor at the John Hopkins School of uh, Advanced International Studies in Bologna, Italy, who's joining us from Brussels. And last, but in no sense least, joining us from Miami, where the weather is better than all the other places combined. Uh, we have Anna Bozovic, who runs Analytics Miami. Um, when I was sitting down and thinking about this, I, sort of think, I think we're now in what you might call the mid-COVID world. So there was the sort of shock of last year where um, obviously everyone locked down very, very fast. You had it in Wuhan and suddenly everyone else started really, you know, it all got really serious, really, really fast in March of, of 2020. Um, and that put the world into a, into a sense of shock. And there's no doubt that it's still in that kind of crisis. And we've now got this very divided world. Um, you know, obviously some places are doing very well on vaccines. You know, look at Israel, they've got, they have no deaths for the first time one day last week. In Gaza, it's going through the roof, scaled up on a massive scale if you compare to say, the UK and US to India. But at the same time, other people are cracking on with other things. So we've had a lot of tension this month with Ukraine, Russia putting a large army on its border. You've got the Chinese um, resuming not just normal jogging with, with Taiwan, but actually much more sort of, you know, a much higher state of, of, of adversarial relations with the rest of the world. You've got the Biden administration doing a whole bunch of things that, um, uh, that go beyond COVID, although obviously with COVID being a, being a really important prism through which they're seen. Um, so there's a lot going on and, um, uh, we're going to hear from our panel who are going to talk us through it. So, Joe, you're up first. Um, as from your former New Zealand but now UK perspective, how is it all looking? Yeah, thanks, Pete, and um, thanks uh, to everyone for joining this evening. And uh, kia ora. Um, firstly, just let me say I was a public servant in New Zealand, and I'll, I'll soon be soon be joining uh, Deloitte's risk advisory practice as a senior manager here in London. But my comments are entirely my own. What I'd like to do is I, I think there are kind of four things which are really dominating the rest of the year um, and they're four C's. It's COVID, climate, China and culture change. Um, and firstly, if we think about COVID-19, um, despite our current freedoms here in the UK, COVID isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And the disaster which is unfolding in India is just further emphasizing for all of us that truly no one is safe until everyone is safe with this uh, pandemic. And while the vaccine rollout here in the UK has been a spectacular success, we now have to replicate that around the rest of the world. Um, and even then, uh, we can't rest on our vaccinated shoulders. Um, we don't know what's going to happen if COVID will, will fade out like Spanish flu, um, become a kind of background noise like influenza, or, or mutate and overcome the current vaccines. 
Um, and the fact that no one can answer those questions shows that for now, we must stay focused both globally and domestically on, on managing the pandemic. And I think all countries and, and businesses are on a risk of, of taking their eye off the ball a little bit too early. Um, and of course, meanwhile, climate change is the, the existential threat in the background um, that we can't forget about while we battle the current crisis. Um, it's been great to see under Biden's leadership, the USA uh, getting back into the fight um, and hopefully COP26 can make some further progress. Um, but the reality with all everything with climate change um, and truly at the moment with all nearly all matters of geopolitics, um, it is all about China, um, which is by far the world's largest current and future emitter. Um, if we think back just to 2016, um, the West was still viewing China as a potential partner. Um, and just five short years later, we're, we're back in a world with two hegemonic superpowers, um, one who is increasingly bellicose uh, in its own backyard. Um, and I think the challenge with China is, while there is so much on the table to talk about, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, trade, the list just goes on and on. Um, the kind of pragmatic reality of it is that the most important thing for everyone on the planet is having China tackle their carbon emissions. Um, and the developed world, to an extent, is going to have to swallow some principles in order to get a pragmatic approach to the relationship and get those emissions cut. Um, and I think it's really worth noting that um, while President Biden was holding his first meeting with a head of state with the Japanese prime minister, simultaneously, John Kerry was in China meeting with his counterparts on climate. Um, and there's nothing accidental about that synchronicity. Um, and lastly, my final thing to say is just about culture change. Um, and it feels like we're currently in the middle of a period of change that is as intense as we've seen since 1968. Not, not that I was around back then, but uh, not that long afterwards. Um, and there are equally strong forces just as there were back then pushing against that change. Um, I think that the long kind of slow death of white supremacy is, is what's continuing to set the scene in the US. Um, and I think that's you know why, the why and how of Trump is, is that um, slow death of white supremacy. Um, and alongside that is, is the rise in inequality, um, in part caused by globalization and in part by trickle-down economics. Um, but whatever the cause, that's really going to dominate the, the political issues within the developed world to the end of this year and for years to come with, with COVID bubbling alongside. Um, I think we're seeing Biden quietly bring in the most progressive changes we've seen in the US since the New Deal, which um, from a lot of points of view is great. I think uh, it feels like it may be going to end up with a de facto minimum guaranteed income, if, if not a universal basic income. Um, and I think the rest of the world needs to be watching on that very, very closely. Um, that's all for me. I'm really excited to hear everyone else's thoughts. So uh, back to you, Pete. Cool. Um, so um, just to quickly say, we, we are recording this and we're aiming to put this out um, uh, in, uh, in by way of being a, a, essentially a sort of a podcast. So uh, do bear that in mind. We're going to take questions um, in a bit. Um, so, you know, there should be a chance to, to, to get to get questions. And do please put questions in the chat. Vic, from the UK perspective, how is it all looking? Thanks. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, a lot of what Joe has just spoken about, you know, I agree with and it's going to take a huge part of these discussions. You know, as we said, our vaccine success here is great, but there's going to be a lot riding on how that goes for the rest of the world. You know, we, as much as we can vaccinate our population, we are a global trading nation. We are going to need to see how it plays out in the rest of the world before we can make any assertions about our own economic recovery. And certainly that's, you know, uh, and tying into that, I guess, is, you know, the update on foreign policy. The government produced its very, very long awaited integrated review recently. Now, as part of that, there were still still a few things I would have liked to have seen in there, notably a bit a bit more specific detail 
but also tying in with what Joe said, there was a lot of focus there on uh, climate change and the UK's desire to take a leading role in, in that sort of agenda going forward. And then looking much more just on a, on a basic domestic basis, I think it's going to be very interesting looking recently at sort of general UK apathy. I think there's been a lot of news recently, you know, really spanning over the last five, six years, the UK has been in a constant news cycle. Uh, you know, it started with the 2015 election, it's gone through Brexit, it's gone through prime ministers, it's gone through everything. And then for the last year, it's been a giant global pandemic and people have been forcibly sat at home. So people have engaged, but you know, I think it's noticeable looking at polling data and sort of issues recently that people don't seem to be engaging. People have, people have run out of interest in news, in journalism, in politics. And obviously we have elections coming up here locally, things you know, all across the UK in the devolved administrations in London on the 6th of May. And yet seemingly there's incredibly you know, little interest in taking it seriously. I think if you look at the fact that the most recent interviews I've seen about the mayoral elections, three of them feature Count Binface. We're in a, we're in a particularly odd place for apathy and UK politics. And I think it's gonna be very interesting to see how that ties in with this sort of emerging, emerging global Britain narrative that the UK is trying to really push at central government level. Yeah, I mean, it felt like, I don't know, those of you remember the 2017 election, um, someone was a woman being very angry that they'd called an election because she felt there was just too much news and there should be less. Um, and I kind of feel like that, that that is sort of being scaled up on a, on a, on a global scale at the moment. Um, and it means that the sort of thing, I mean, Britain's got its G7, um, you know, in June. Um, but again, people just, it doesn't see a little bit, lot of appetite for that kind of activity or paying attention to it uh, amongst the amongst the general population. That's probably also true globally. And what you, the other thing I'm really struck by at the moment, looking at what's happening in India is how little idea we have really of what's happening. We're covering the crisis in Delhi pretty well, because that's where the foreign correspondents are. We're covering the crisis in Mumbai moderately reasonably. It's a country of close to one and a half billion people and huge swathes of it. We have very little idea what's going on in um, and, um, and, and, and scarcely any interest um, because people's interest beyond sort of a very short story and indeed I suspect most people are avoiding that um, is, 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 is pretty minimal. Um, Sir Michael. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm very happy to be with you all this evening. From a Brussels perspective, this year, of course, has been dominated so far also by COVID and by the, the narrative that uh, the epidemic has been a kind of fiasco for the European Union. And I think as the year goes forward, we'll have a better view um, over a longer period as to whether that turns out to be the case or not. Whether it's the delay in the rollout of vaccines, or one hears that even the Russians and the Chinese are doing better than um, the EU, at its own game of soft power in its neighborhood, providing vaccines to, to Serbia, to uh, some of the other countries further to the east. Um, Sputnik V has been ordered uh, by Austrians, maybe produced in Italy and all the rest of it. And that the EU has been really having a pretty bad um, epi epidemic. So as the year goes forward, I think we're going to see this in, in more perspective. A critical view I think might be sustained and as anywhere else where there have been delays, there are victims, there are those who've died who would not have died otherwise, there are those who got sick who would not have got sick otherwise, nothing can gainsay that. But it seems to me that in the next couple of months, 
uh, vaccines in Europe are probably going to become uh, abundant and uh, the EU will have caught up to a very considerable extent with uh, by, by July, August, September at the latest, 60, 70% of the population at least having had uh, one jab. And when you look further afield beyond the EU itself, you look at the Balkan countries who have applied for membership, uh, Serbia, Bosnia, North Macedonia, Albania, Kosovo, and so on. Um, little by little, the vaccines are reaching them too. And they are not especially enchanted by the Chinese, whose projects under the Belt and Road Initiative in the Balkans have run up huge debts for some of these countries. They brought in Russian laborers, doesn't generate any local jobs. I think there's no um, endearment really towards, towards Russia in many of these countries. So the idea that you know, the EU has tripped up over its um, uh, signature soft power and that the Russians or the Chinese benefit, I'm not sure that we're there yet. Uh, and we may not even be moving in that direction. And it's quite possible that by the fall, uh, the early fumbles will be forgotten and particularly the EU's smaller countries will be pleased that they too have abundant supplies and they'll be aware that if they were left to go for the vaccines and to negotiate with big companies themselves, they probably wouldn't have done such a brilliant job either. So the court is out and as the year advances, <clears throat> I think we'll have a better sense of where Europe comes out on the, on the COVID story. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Anna, from Miami, how's it all looking? Sunny, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, wonderful. Now, um, what I said, what, one thing you said, Peter, you said we're in the mid-COVID world. I like that. Actually, I think we're in the 25th percentile of a mid-COVID world approaching. You know, we're, we're, we're living in one of the most rapidly transformative periods. You were about a quarter of the way in. Sorry? You were about a quarter of the way through the process. I don't think we're halfway yet. I think we're entering the middle period, perhaps, where the okay. shock has where the where the shock has worn off, and now people are sort of able to absorb what's happening. It's a period of radical uncertainty, and in one positive perspective, um, you know, it, it's it's an acceleration of habit change. Right? We've all been living in habits that were established pre-internet, in urban epicenters and densities that were established pre-internet, and the internet came and we adapted it into our existing habits and our existing structures, our existing office buildings, all that stuff. We didn't actually change any of our habits because habits are sticky. So this is in many ways accelerating us into the post-internet world, forcing habit changes. We had a full economic, you know, full, full stop event and people had to reevaluate how they work, how they go to school, where, where they're moving. You know, we're certainly seeing the United States, we're seeing what I'm calling like a dissipation of pre-internet epicenters like New York City, San Francisco, things like this. So that's all wonderful. At the same time, COVID also is serving as kind of a, a smoke screen that is hiding underlying structural defects that were in place beforehand, especially in monetary and fiscal policy. And I actually I put out something before COVID saying that we were like the world was primed for a black swan event because you know whenever you have charts that go asymptotic, that go vertical, that approach the vertical, there's no graceful exit from that. If you look at sovereign debt and what's been happening with you know record levels of negative yielding debt, which has never happened in the history of money, all of that was unsustainable before COVID, and now it's only accelerated. And it's actually central banks and their activities that drive inequality. I'm disagreeing with, I think it was Joe who said trickle-down economics. I think it's actually central banks that do this, or the driving forces behind inequality. Look what's happened in America. Um, and, and I think the same holds true for the rest of the world. The, the job losses and economic impact of COVID have been felt most heavily by people who um, are, are working class, who do not work off of intellectual capital because they've been shut down. 
And that's where the job losses have been in the US. And that's where the slowest recovery of jobs has also been. At the same time, people with financial assets are greatly benefiting from the largesse of the you know, various printing presses that are pumping up the equity markets, right? So this is further accelerating social and you know, divides in, in wealth. And this is happening globally. And this is gonna be a major cause of ongoing unrest in the world. There, there's something that just happened. The, 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 the global middle class has shrunk for the first time since the 1990s. There's a Pew Research report, the global middle class is defined as people making between 10 and $50 a day. And their ranks have dropped by 90 million um, throughout this sort of the, the COVID recovery efforts. And I think the implications of that have um, just begun to be felt or perhaps not even. Um, so that's where we are. I think the positive is that we're adapting to the post-internet world. The negative is that we need to be aware of the driving inequalities that are happening and how there's an uneven distribution of how COVID is being felt. And I fear that central banks, it's ECB, the Federal Reserve, they're just gonna keep making things worse and feeding the instability by keeping interest rates where they are and by, by sort of accelerating this divide between those who have financial assets and those who do not. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Joe, when you were talking about kind of moving towards a universal basic income in the US. I mean, the UK experimented with an even more unusual thing this year, which is a near universal guaranteed income, whoever you are, just because your job has vanished which oh. was not a plan that anyone necessarily had ever considered until about a week before they did it. You know, it's uh, almost funny yeah. because AI, artificial intelligence is going to, over time, make a lot of jobs obsolete, right? We see it in the early stages right now with self-checkout at stores, things like this. And so as people are made obsolete, something has to be done with them for lack of better expression. And so I, I do think that UBI is inevitable in many ways. And then the implications of that are... Yeah, I mean, let's. I, mean, I, want to, I want to drill into that a bit more with Joe. Um, you know, this idea that I mean, a, what do we mean by that? B, how widespread does it turn out to be? C, what the hell does that mean for the stuff that Anna was outlining about about sovereign debt? Right? I mean, you know, this is if sovereign debt is unsustainable now, and you decide that you want to pay a lot of people, um, you know, you're going to start giving lots of people even lots of money. That's kind of that's quite a card circle to 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 put in, or is money just imaginary and it doesn't matter? Which of course is one of the um, you know is is an argument that you hear more and more. Um, and um, is not as easy to defeat with no, it isn't as you might initially think it is. Um, Joe, I mean, where, where do you think those kind of discussions sort of set? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we're rapidly heading away from a place where wealth is produced through labor. I mean, I mean we've been there for a while. Wealth is, is generally produced through capital now. It'll be produced through AI and robotics uh, increasingly in, in the future, and that's inevitable. Um, the best possible outcome is a return to the Renaissance, um, where you know uh, the wealthy pay Why the rest of us to entertain them. Technological breakthroughs. Yeah, that, that and and the wealthy pay us to entertain them, right? That, that's you know we 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 make their houses beautiful and we make their food for them and we make art and we write poems and we. And we but there are several billion of us and about twelve of them. Yeah, exactly. So there are some there are some problems with this um, unless we bring back the circus. Um, but I, I, I think um, we, we are. So I, I, I train with professional fighters. Don't, don't ask. That's my, my alternate life apart from my dirty self. And the fastest growing sport in America is bare knuckle boxing. I swear to you. And I, I find it so fascinating because you have a country, America, that was 45 percent obese going into Corona. Now it's more people have gained weight. So you have an obese population paying to watch men try and kill each other with their bare knuckles. It's very much the circus. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's Romans been circuses, right? for about, about 350, 400 years. Um, Joe, and then I want to come back to Michael and, and Vic. Yeah, so, so I just think inevitably we're going to see um, some extension of benefits through to, uh, personally, I would prefer not to have a, a, a UBI. I think a minimum guaranteed income makes more sense. Um, I think there's a lot of... Um, How are they different? 
Yeah. Uh, so a minimum guaranteed income, basically the, the, the tax office looks at what you earned last week. If you didn't earn a minimum amount, they top it up. Um, but you so you're not, you're not making payments to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a level of uh, justice and equity in that. Um, and I think it, it also allows people to still seek the, the dignity and the benefits of additional work or uh, greater work. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we need to be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, capitalism produces massive amounts of wealth. Um, we haven't come up with anything better yet. Um, so we need to be careful not to change, uh, change the system too drastically. Um, and, and, you know, to, to some of the other points, um, a UBI may create a level of change that we're not really sure what all of the impacts would be. I mean, uh, Vic, I mean, bread and circuses in the UK, I mean, what are our circuses and how much of it is provided single-handedly by Boris Johnson? Well, I mean, currently most, as I said, I think people aren't that interested in the news, but anything that they do want to read, he can provide. Uh, which at least keeps us all entertained, if not slightly miserable. Um, but I think certainly, you know, so I'm coming at this from a sort of, you know, as I said, talking about the integrated review angle. I mean, an example just of sort of, you know, automating jobs and where this is going. I mean, we had, well, uh, and on a Boris angle, you know, the election in 2019, we had the promise that there would be no cuts to the services at all. And then what we were reading in the papers back in, March was, uh, you know, that drones don't require a pension. And so there we were, and suddenly you're seeing that the numbers of the military are cut, you're seeing that they're talking about, you know, any, any foreign intervention we're doing, they're looking to actually talk about this through, you know, through automation. This is going to be unmanned, it's going to be automatic, they're talking about now, you know, fight the space race again. You know, I mean, if you're talking about going, you know, going back in time, we're back into a second space race. I think, you know, they, in terms of jobs and securing them, you know, just coming at it from one very specific industry, an industry that, you know, not that long ago, people thought would always be a safe job. You know, the armed forces was always a job for life. And yet here they are cutting, cutting troop numbers, uh, you know, and replacing them with, with unmanned, uh, you know, with unmanned systems. So it's certainly, uh, you know, pervading into every, every element of, of existence at the moment and will start moving its way into the international sphere. I mean so Michael, I want to come back to this. I mean, the one thing that I'm really struck by is that almost every institution I encounter and deal with is sort of, has been much more damaged. I mean, it was, was already in trouble before this period started, before COVID, you know, whether it's Western democracy or, you know, any sort of, you know, a, a conventional business that's, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, doesn't matter. They were all, they all had a slight air of crisis um, as they were coming into this, unless they were one of the sort of new businesses du jour of a sort of Uber or Deliveroo, and even they often have more crisis than you'd think. Um, this sudden lockdown, everyone's working from home, uh, you know, you can't do diplomacy the way you used to, seems to have sort of pushed everything into a higher level of just institutional dysfunction. I mean, to what extent in, in the Brussels environment are you seeing institutions and individuals moving past that and that sort of those systems starting to work again? And to what extent is that sort of, is that dysfunction still there? I think it's all trade-offs and, um, you know, you win some, you lose some. And in some ways, um, this situation, I won't say has breathed new life into institutions, but it's forced them to be creative in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. You know, rather than <clears throat> answer the question about Brussels, I'm very much involved in higher education these days. And um, universities are being innovative in ways that they never would have been before. And between online courses, uh, hybrid courses, and courses taught in person, you know, we might be moving towards a situation 
where universities offer a whole menu of possibilities to potential students. Just before we came uh, together this evening, I was teaching a class and I had participants uh, in Asia, in Arizona, New Mexico, in Bologna, in Italy, and so on. And you know, when you look at diplomacy as well, when you look at the summit that was held in which uh, Biden was able to join uh, the, the EU heads of, heads of government, um, these things can be organized much more quickly um, with, with much less cumbersome, much less risk, much less cost. Um, after an awkward start, I think, you know, um, diplomats, politicians, national leaders have found ways to be in touch much more rapidly than they were previously. So, I mean, predominantly there are losses. There are all those indirect benefits, those social contacts between leaders, all the things that are said in the corners and so on that you can't do when you're online. But I think it's also brought out creativity and this might be breathing new life into some institutions. Um, the court is out, it's too early to say, but I wouldn't want to say that it's exacerbated the crises of institutions. I think it just might in the end go in the other direction. No, I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting kind of point. And I think the second question that sort of thinks me is, is the future of the international system. I mean, there's no doubt, you know, whether you're looking at, at you know, Chinese drones on Dongshar Island off Taiwan or Russian tanks on the borders of Eastern Europe or, um, you know, for that matter, some of the more sort of muscular forms of Indian diplomacy or indeed the EU taking legal action against AstraZeneca. You know, you've seen you've seen quite a lot of sort of fairly punchy sort of um, uh, state on state confrontation. And um, you know, again, I mean, you obviously we saw, you know, some of the Brexit stuff around um, around Christmas time when we saw lockdowns and then, uh, you know, it all the whole Brexit um, in the UK came at the same time as the second wave. I mean, Joe, what, what do you think the international system is going to look like? in maybe a year's time, because it's clearly slightly as a, um, it's clearly not quite where we left it a year ago. Yeah, I mean, I think luckily for most people and definitely for small players like New Zealand, um, Biden is returning to a rules-based system. I think his spokespeople have said rules-based system um, more times than, um, than they would care to remember. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but I think we are heading back to a, to a bipolar uh, superpower kind of balance of powers. Um, you know, China uh, isn't going anywhere and, and they're, they're going to increasingly um, spread their reach through, through um, Belt and Road um, and other uh, uh, efforts into Africa and around the world. Um, so I think that's going to be, um, you know, the, the way that things go. I think the challenge probably is we've now got a generation of, of politicians and bureaucrats who um, don't really remember what the Cold War was like and not necessarily the Cold War, but having two hegemonic uh, superpowers and, and how that works and having to make um, pragmatic uh, solutions and pragmatic relationships with powers that we disagree with uh, on some pretty fundamental things uh, on, on human rights and on, on systems of government. Um, Russia probably doesn't have the power anymore and, and can be a pretty, you know, uh, malicious, malignant player. But even then, um, you know, Biden has, has punished them uh, while saying don't overreact uh, and, um, and maybe there's a summit in this. Um, so I think that's probably would be my pick on where we're heading. Okay, no, that makes um, that that makes sense. I'm going to take a, a crop of maybe two or three questions from the floor. Uh, try and keep your questions kind of uh, kind of fair, you know, brief and to the point. I'm going to start with Michael Harwood. I think had a question on uh, Turkey. Hello, um, especially as Sir Michael is with us, uh, Turkey is constantly in the news at the moment. It, originally, it was about EU membership. Now it's about um, historical genocide. 
It's also a key member of NATO. Um, what do our delegates panel think about Turkey and what's President Erdogan going to do? It's a really good question. I'm also I'm quite also really intrigued about this idea of sort of middle powers. You know, it's not just, it's not just Turkey; it's France. Um, you know, Japan. You know, all of these in this in this new multipolar world, a lot of these sort of countries have quite a bit more agency than they used to. Really interesting question about whether that applies to Britain or whether Britain is actually not a beneficiary of that kind of dynamic. Um, I'm going to take one from Ewan, and then if someone else can put a question in the chat, I'll come I'll come to you. Ewan Grant. You had a question on supply chains. I think otherwise I'll get Lauren to read it out. Lauren, can can you read uh, Ewan's question? Um, uh, will the vulnerability of supply chains, which has been dramatically demonstrated, lead to an accelerated scramble for raw materials for the new digital economies? Fantastic. And um, last but no least, uh, Russell King just put a question in, I think. Russell, I think you're still on mute. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for bearing with me on that one. Uh, basically, a very simple question. Um, what's the role of disinformation post-Trump? I highlighted that in a piece of work I did for Wikistrat immediately before Christmas. I don't know. Are we in a different world now? Okay, really bunch of really good questions. Um, so Michael, I'm going to start with with the Turkey and the and the middle powers kind of question, uh, but also feel free to take a crack at, at, at either of those um, as well. Well, I think Erdogan has moved into the sort of twilight phase of his presidency after about 20 years now in office. And he's moved beyond the phase of Islamist ideology into a much more nationalistic phase in which uh, the, the ideology is, is essentially state ideology. Um, and uh, he's put forward this view of Turkey, as Peter said, as a kind of middle power that is moving towards a sort of equidistance uh, between, between Russia, uh, China, and the West, even though Turkey is a member of NATO, has the second largest military in NATO, is still and has not given up being a candidate for EU membership, even though the talks have long since run into the ground and so on. So, you know, if Peter, if I understand Peter's question right, it's, you know, is there a future of this sort of vision of, of a middle power that might not be closely aligned with um, one major power or another? I think in Turkey's case, we're seeing really the limits of this. You know, he made the big gesture of ordering the S-400 missiles from, from Russia, but immediately was then cut out of uh, the orders that he placed for the F-35s from the United States, some of which were going to be developed within Turkey. And basically Putin is running rings around him, um, particularly in, in Syria. Um, he seems to have got his way for the time being in Libya, but that's not quite clear. And in the Eastern Mediterranean, he really hasn't succeeded in the kind of breakthrough that he was seeking. So how viable is it for a country like Turkey, faced with major economic challenges, faced with COVID, uh, faced with big beasts uh, all around him, to try and pose as a power that doesn't, re as a medium power, that doesn't really need its close links with NATO, with the EU, with the United States, and so on. I think we're seeing the, the, the end of, of, of that phase, but we're not quite sure where it's going. 
And also it's very uncertain because in Turkey, as in, in many other democratic countries or formerly democratic countries, we've seen a kind of collapse of oppositions and particularly of, of the center left, either because they've been persecuted as in Turkey or simply as Anna was saying, because they really haven't come up to, with answers to the problems facing the working class. And uh, some of these figures like Erdogan have got away with it simply because there are no convincing and viable oppositions to block their way. So we have to see what might happen but I think we're at the beginning of the, of the, the post one era, but we can't quite see our way clear yet. Okay, fantastic. Um, Joe, do you want to take the disinformation or the supply chain questions? Yeah, um, just very quickly on supply chains, um, you know, for, for New Zealand, um, a, a seriously isolated country at the bottom of the world with no major international alliances, supply chains are pretty terrifying. And, and at the start of COVID, uh, that was a major major priority was trying to figure out what our supply chains were for the basic products um, obviously we make enough food and uh, and beverages to keep ourselves going but um you know it's testing kits for for, um, for covid and, and masks were priority number one um so there's a, a real focus on that and also for the pacific islands um they are heavily reliant on international shipping systems um and it's international shipping systems that are going to push those uh, islands underwater through climate change um, so they're really struggling to understand what their position is on, on international shipping at the moment. Um, on mis and disinformation, um, I think things will get slightly better with Trump gone. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a large vocal malignant player that's been taken off the scene. Um, you know, Biden's approval rating at the moment is sitting at 55% and, and it's pretty solid. Uh, and I think that shows that people can be convinced um, of an argument um, when it's put to them. Uh, I think we, we, the, the only way it's really going to become uh, less of a problem, and it is a substantial and worrying problem at the moment, is if the tech companies uh, and governments take it seriously, and to an extent take the approach that we take with um, Islamic radicalism. So uh, if you're a young uh, Muslim in, um, in Belgium, uh, and you search um, jihad, um, you will get taken to moderate sites um, that will talk to you uh, about the Quran. Uh, in, in moderate ways um, and until we have kind of proactive measures uh, getting in between people and that mis and disinformation on the internet um, I don't think we're going to see it go anywhere uh, at scale at least. Um, Vic I mean how does this look from the UK because um... well I think actually I mean it's a really interesting point obviously about about Trump and and he was you know as we saw it at the time the king of disinformation but uh, Part of me is inclined to believe that it being propagated by somebody so high profile was not in itself a bad thing, in that it raised awareness. Now, obviously, it's not something we want to be encouraging. We should not be having world leaders just putting out anything they feel like on social media. However, I think before Trump, there was an element that was certainly sort of, you know, the disinformation wasn't taken seriously in many respects. And it's a campaign that's been going on from Russia and from China. And you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people here who are uh, you know, much better experts in the role of disinformation in warfare than I am. But certainly it's actually brought it to the fore in a much more public light. So now people can look at it. And we've now got, for example, censors on Twitter that will say, well, this has been flagged as incorrect. So I think it was, for example, Lawrence Fox put something up as a mayoral candidate the other day about people not taking vaccines and Twitter flagged it saying, to be aware, to see accurate COVID information, please log here, this has been flagged as disinformation. And if it 
you know, and so it's not right that Trump did it, but if it has taken us one step further to people taking this seriously, and actually countries setting up their own processes to be aware of it and to counter it, then we should also see it as a learning opportunity, not just something awful. That makes, yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot to be said there. Anna, I mean, how does this look from your, the world, the wilds of uh, Miami Beach? So I'm gonna start by saying that I'm politically agnostic. I dislike both major political parties in the United States. So I don't, I don't mean this as an endorsement of either party, but I'm very, very troubled by, it's like, it's like, you know, you speak, disinformation. Who defines it? Who defines truth? What gives anyone the right to define truth? If we look at, if we look through history, you know, go 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 back 100, 200 years at some point, and some something that was held to be sacrosanct and true at that point in history, fast forward 100 years, we think it's wrong. Now we define it as not true. So who, who's the arbiter of truth? And I find it extremely dangerous when you have organizations like Twitter, which, which are huge forms of public discourse, decrying something as truth. For instance, Twitter bans Trump, but there's all sorts of extremist other stuff on Twitter that does not get banned. So how, how do they have that right to silence him, but not silence a Muslim extremist? And there are tons of examples of this. So I'm, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply troubled by disinformation. I think it's become some weird new, new, new speak, like from 1984, like who, who says what's true or not? And why do we hold these media outlets as, as, as the arbiters of truth? For instance, like in the United States, you, you know, it's like, it's like if you're doing a math proof, you're doing some logic exercise and you find that someone has lied to you greatly, you should call into question everything else they say. Why would you believe everything else they say 100% after that, right? So you have you have these established news outlets like the New York Times that we have plenty examples of them printing things that are complete insanity and false and to, to be, you know, politically, to remove politics from it. Like I, you know, I'm going to sports example, I've been an athlete my whole life. And the New York Times will print things and say, there's no evidence that testosterone aids in athletic performance because they're supporting people born male competing against women. That is fundamentally false. Testosterone is the super drug for sports performance. Okay, so you have organizations that print complete falsehoods on both sides of the spectrum. Why should you believe them? Why are they the arbiters of truth? You have to keep an open mind. It's not a monolith. There's all sorts of information coming from all different places. So I'm deeply troubled by big tech censorship and this whole idea that there is a truth. And there isn't a truth. Truth gets redefined as history goes. And I think the more we can do to keep things open, look, you don't like something, don't read it. Who, yeah, who I mean, we're, we're only 18 years from um, the second Gulf War, which of course was, you know, launched on, under a, for, for a bunch of, uh, bunch of, you know, bunch of facts that turned out to be slightly more dubious than we initially thought exactly. to be, were then amplified by outlets like the New York Times and otherwise. I mean, nevertheless, Joe, I mean, the, the the rise of big tech, and it's not just big tech now, right? Because if you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, the also to you know, and, and Elon Musk, they are also big space. So you know, if we look at the coming century, they really are, you know, they are the arbiters of huge amounts of things. Whether you are building small bits of furniture that you sell, or whether you're interested in the future of Mars, someone like Amazon probably controls sort of both ends of that at the moment. Um, someone like Tesla is obviously fairly influential in quite a lot of different overlapping spaces. We are seeing the emergence of these supremely powerful firms in a way that we haven't before, right? Yeah, and, and it's um, it's both a little bit terrifying and a little bit exciting, right? Like it's in, in a way, it's 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 disappointing that Elon Musk is putting his both his brain power and his money behind space exploration when he could be putting it behind Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and, and solving a solving a real problem for real people. Um, you know, space exploration is fun, but is that the best thing he could be doing? Um, I, I think inevitably society um, is always going to have problems with those extreme levels of wealth. 
Um, but they're so extreme and they are such outliers. Like we're still talking about around, I think there's about two and a half thousand billionaires in the world. Um, and do they really count as people? Um, they really count as people as much as, you know, corporations are treated like people from a legal point of view. Um, do we really need to worry about the fact that that much wealth is in the, in the hands of one person? Is that any different than, than wealth being in the hands of one corporation? I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, I think in terms of the, the mis and disinformation, there's another thing happening at the moment where, and this kind of goes to Anna's point, I disagreed with some aspects of it. Um, I don't think that uh, a Twitter ban has anything to do with free speech. I think Twitter is a, is a business and if they don't want to print your tweets, then that, that's their call. But there's this phenomenon where, where organizations and individuals on the right and on the left are presenting these kind of oversimplified narratives about what in reality are truly gnarly problems. Um, and the solutions are presented as being easy, um, but for the existence of some easily panned villain. Um, so what happens is if we have probably well-meaning but poorly informed activists on the left, for example, saying things like vaccines can't get to poor people because Bill Gates won't give up the patent. Um, and that's not true. That's a simplification of a big problem. Um, patents may be part of the problem, but really it's high quality production of vaccines, which is the problem. Um, there, you know, all vaccine facilities in the world are, are pumping out uh, COVID vaccines. Um, freeing up the patents won't produce a single extra vaccine. Um, so we need to be really careful around that as well, and, and not accepting those simplified narratives because there's a there's a huge amount of harm within them. I mean, Vic, let's bring us back to the the world that we know and love of the UK. Uh, I mean, how you know, how do we feel about? the way the UK sort of political news environment is kind of feels at the moment. You know, we've got clearly a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of noise. Um, I'm not sure that the things that we're discussing, yeah, if you look at the you know, political day book this morning, the top three or four stories, which are Boris and his refurbishment, Boris and his quote about, you know, things being piled high. You have to read a very, very long way down into that before you get into any kind of substantive policy discussion. Yeah, I think what was particularly interesting uh, is, for example, there was a really interesting piece in The Times today about Nazanin and, you know, what essentially the geopolitics behind that currently look like and what it would look, you know, but this was going halfway through the app to the bottom of the page to find something about what is essentially a proxy uh, in a global relationship between US, the UK and Iran, you know, and certainly as far as I would see it, this is something that should be higher, higher up the news agenda. But at the same time, when, you know, and I do believe absolutely that our newspaper should be, you know, privately owned, and you get then to the point of what are people interested in? And so, you know, forever we will be coming up against the issue of plenty of people would rather go on the mail online and look at the sidebar of shame than actually look around them. And, you know, that's not necessary. And there's nothing we can do about that what we have to try and do is actually change people's minds. We need to be finding better ways of impressing on people the effect that the global position has on the UK. So I think Brexit is a really good example of people not necessarily actually understanding how interconnected the world is. So people, you know, were there was a case of somebody I know, it's a personal anecdote, but they were surprised when the cost of things went up because they didn't understand that devaluing the pound meant that things would get more expensive because we have to buy in the basic supplies. And this was something that genuinely to them was mind boggling. And so you look and you go, well, obviously it's very easy to say that this should, this, you know, should be really clear. But so often, as I think Joe said, you get very extremes. You get people who come in and tell you it's a fact on one side and tell you it's a fact on other side. 
and people, you know, how are people meant to know what is actually out there is worth believing? I mean, Brexit is a great example of project fear versus everything is going to be fine. And realistically, we're probably always going to be somewhere between the two. But we need to find a way where people aren't drawn to being the most extreme version of themselves to get airtime. I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, it brings us to the, the next thing I wanted to raise with Sir Michael, which is the future of democracy. I mean, in terms of other alarming stories in the Times today that probably represent something of an oversimplification of another country, um, the, uh, uh, the article signed by a number of former French generals calling for a military takeover in France um, because the country is in the grip of Islamic fundamentalism is the sort of thing that you don't necessarily want to see taking place in your nuclear armed closest neighbor. Um, I mean, probably not gonna see a military coup in France in the immediate term, but we are seeing a sort of hollowing out of confidence in democracy in quite a lot of places, right, uh, Michael? And, 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 and some parts of mainland Europe are, are, are places where that is, 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 you can really feel that. Sorry, you're on mute, uh, Michael. And, uh, you know, taking off from our earlier discussion and the point that Anna made that Joe did not agree with about um, Twitter um, preventing Trump or others from, from speaking, um, that it, the idea that it really shouldn't be up to uh, private companies at all to decide who may speak and who does not speak. But beyond all of that, I think there's been a big discussion of post-truth politics related to various populist leaders, whether Trump or others, who can be clearly identified. But more worrying in the longer run, I think, is the erosion of um, accountability and responsibility among leaders who you wouldn't normally identify uh, as populist. Now, it's been a long time now since anyone resigned, you know, if you were not in Scandinavia, um, in most Western democracies, people have stopped resigning. But if we look at some of the things that have been said and done uh, throughout the COVID uh, story in, in, in Western democracies, no responsibility has been taken at any stage uh, for what has happened. And you know, people have died on a large scale as a result of bad decisions, really misleading decisions. And you know, in, in, in the early days in the UK, I mean, the absolute confidence and certainty with which the herd immunity argument was, was pursued echoed to some extent in Sweden, in Switzerland, and for a while to some extent in the Netherlands. And you know, people in those countries died as a result of misleading positions taken by politicians. Um, nobody is held accountable or responsible uh, in the dispute over AstraZeneca's contract and all of that. You know, I mean, things have been said publicly by normally responsible political leaders who are not populist, which quite simply are not true. And there is no accountability there. So I'm not so much concerned now about populists. We've seen that big democracies like the United States are maybe more resilient than we think, and probably in Europe as well, uh, that is the case. I'm more concerned about the erosion of accountability, responsibility, and the, the culture of, of telling the truth among political forces who normally are identified as being democratic. And I think it's that sort of slow erosion that leads to public cynicism, alienation from politics, and the sort of temptation to go with more extremist 
forces. There, I think, is one of the biggest dangers to democracy that we're going to be seeing going forward. No, I think that's a that's a really interesting one. I mean, I, I guess it's a. I was struck by by Anna's comment earlier about the sort of about twenty five way percent of the way through um, the, uh, the the COVID crisis, and it sort of reminds me of Churchill's comment on the Battle of El Alamein. This is not the beginning of the end, but it may perhaps be the end of the beginning. And um, one of the things that's really striking in the Second War in the UK is that at the in the beginning, there's a point where everyone's expected to resign, and in fact they do. So fall of France, fall of Norway. You know, people end up. You know, with their kind of with their heads on plates. When you get to the fall of Singapore in December 1941, everyone just battles on regardless. You know, I mean, you know, and, and not necessarily unreasonably so in the sense that it's events and you know the world would not be a better place if Winston Churchill had fallen on his sword and let someone else take over the country sometime, you know, at the beginning of 1942, just because an entirely large British army had surrendered to a much smaller force and we'd suddenly lost control of huge swathes of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, clearly a resigning kind of act in normal times. Um, so, I mean, you know, where do we draw the line in terms of, you know, clearly your Prime Minister in New Zealand has got the credit for getting it right. Um, but the truth is, if she hadn't managed to get that in, if, you know, 50 people had turned up on a bus from Wuhan or a plane from Wuhan, you know, six weeks earlier, and New Zealand had been the first place to be open in Italy and been overwhelmed by a COVID spike um, first rather than last, which could equally easily have happened. Um, you know, where, where does accountability really sit when you're when you're looking at those kind of things? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Because I, I think, you know, people like to say that COVID was a black swan event. It wasn't. We, we knew there was going to be a global pandemic. We, we, we actually expected it to be much worse than this, uh, you know, to be a, a deadlier disease. And, and it probably will be. COVID is probably just nature's warning shot. Um, I, I think, you know, going back to that World War II analogy, um, Eisenhower relieved uh, about 150 generals during World War II. Uh, he relieved them of command and, and sent them off to other jobs. Uh, but they had the prospect of coming back again. Um, the point was the right person and the right job at the right time. Um, and we've completely abandoned that approach. So is the US military. The US military very rarely relieves uh, a general now, unless they're- And what it does, it's a career ender, right? It, it's absolutely career ending. And generally it's because they've put something in the wrong place um, and not military assets. Um, and, and we need to get back to that, and especially during, during moments of crisis. Um, and labor laws make that quite difficult. Um, and I think we maybe need to look at ways um, of relaxing them during moments of crisis so that we can move people around uh, very, very quickly and get the right people into the right jobs. Um, I think politicians need to be really careful in these moments of crisis to uh, be accountable but not take all the responsibility on themselves and this is when they need to hand over to the bureaucrats and say you guys are the experts you get the job done and if you're not the right person i'll relieve you and when the politicians should quit if they don't do that if they don't own the the, the uh, responsibility of making sure the bureaucrats are doing the job yeah i mean there's just any questions in the uk on that where there's a fair amount of evidence that the scientific bureaucrats called the initial phase of the pandemic catastrophically wrong and the vaccine phase which actually kicked off the same week incredibly right yeah um, i find it stunning that those scientists still have jobs in the uk that they they may they may have done some good work at the end but i find it amazing that they're still here but i, I mean, think also just sorry but to chip in very similarly of the cabinet you know i mean there are certainly examples that we've looked at where people have made catastrophic errors this is not just covid i'm just talking sort of in recent times. And the problem becomes, I mean, to some extent with the scientists, even though mistakes were made, I can almost see a logic behind when they were doing a daily briefing, keeping some level of consistency. It may have been 
the wrong approach in terms of science, but I can I can see the attitude and maybe the thought process behind it in terms of them fronting this up. If you give a change of suddenly give a change of scientists halfway through, you're going to create a sense of panic. However, if you look at cabinet positions in recent years, the only qualification has been to be incredibly loyal to you know, the prime minister. And of course, a cabinet needs to be loyal, but it also needs to be competent. And actually, it needs to know when to question. Uh, a prime minister needs to have people around him who are experts in their department and who know when to say whether something will or won't work. But if your entire basis for your political team around you is loyalty, then you're never going to ask them to resign because the reason they're there is only to support you anyway. So your interest in whether or not they are the right person of the job is already diminished. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a broader point here, right, Sir Michael, in that if you are Erdogan or Putin or Xi Jinping or you know, the, uh, the chair of a West Midlands local authority, your priority is increasingly is survival. And therefore, you you build your Praetorians around you. You know, if you're you know if you're Macron, you're worried about the next election. Um, the one leader who potentially sort of is is a little beyond this at the moment is Angela Merkel, um, because she seems to be on the on the you know on the way out. Regardless, it's a matter of sort of working out how it is. But a lot of these institutions, a lot of these individuals are very much in survival mode now. Um, to what extent does that make the sort of their decision making more more challenging? And what's the answer? Well you know, we're supposed to be looking forward to 2021 and where it's headed. And I think uh, what's not quite what you asked, Peter, but um, political transition is very much um, the, the, the flavor of the year. Uh, we, we have the new president of the United States. Angela Merkel is going to lead. Um, we see the various color combinations possible. In Germany, we may have quite a different complexion in government by the end of the year. I think personally, it would be a very good thing if the CDU went into opposition and had time to regenerate itself in opposition. Um, we've had parties clinging to power for, for far too long in a number of different countries. Edwin, I believe, in his, in his last days, so in uh, or last, last months or last years. Um, the very well, least. I think, days. yeah, I literally, metaphorically, last days, not, not literally, alas. Um, so, you know, in a time like this, where are we headed and are we going to see a revival of political forces, particularly center left political forces? Are we going to see the socialists disappear and be replaced by the Greens in country after country? Will the Greens be the new center left, for example? There are all of these trends which are advancing you know, before our eyes. And I think 2021 might turn out to be a pivotal year. Okay, really interesting. I'm going to bring people to bring people in very quickly for some last kind of thoughts. Um, one key trend to look for in the rest of 2021, you've got, you know, um, well, you've got what, um, uh, eight months to, to look at. Um, and secondly, uh, one reason to be optimistic. And thirdly, one reason to be pessimistic. And I'm going to start with Anna. And I'm going to then go to Vic, then Joe, then Michael, I think. Um, one uh, key trend to look at a positive trend, I think is, um, the further sort of dissipation of polarities, the, the, the trend of a more multipolar world and people incorporating the internet, redefining new habits around the internet. That's a very positive trend. I think it's gonna keep going on. And I think it's gonna play out with how people work, how they go to school, et cetera. Nothing ever goes backwards. We're not gonna go back to living and working and going to school like we did before this. So I think that's a positive trend. What was the next one? Uh, then I want, uh, so one, one trend, uh, one, uh, one, 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 one thing to watch the rest of the year and one reason to be pessimistic. 
Okay, so reason to be optimistic. And now I'm generally very optimistic because look, if we look at the 20th century, despite all the calamities and world wars and things that happen in it, you're generally speaking, would any of us choose to live in 1900? I certainly would not. So I think there's a general positive arc of, of, of civilization going forward. You just, you know what it is? It's like, you don't wanna be in Hiroshima when the bomb is being dropped, right? But the general arc of history keeps getting better and better. And so I, I think that COVID changing habits and again, forcing us into this post-internet age is a very positive. So I'm very, very optimistic on that. I think that from great change will come good innovations and improvements for humanity as they had in the past, despite you know short-term um, hardship and challenges. Um, what am I pessimistic about? I'm very pessimistic about growing um, wealth inequalities. Um, I think that is a huge, huge force. And I don't think that people are acknowledging or appreciating how unsustainable monetary and fiscal policy was even leading into this and how much those wealth divides are gonna be fueling nationalism, all, all, all that stuff, because it's not going away. And, and, and you look at how, you know, GDP, um, debt to GDP ratios are, are now only analogous to what they were post-World War II. Obviously, post-World War II, we had a whole paradigm shift in the world. And I think that if you look at monetary and debt cycles, that's what drives so much of history of human behavior. We like to pin it on presidents and things. It's insignificant. If you look at charts of interest rates and, and, and sovereign debt, you can't see where the new president came. There's one of the biggest drivers of human behavior. And we're at such an unsustainable, like vertical place in all those charts that 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 troubles me the most because there's no graceful exit from that. Fantastic, Vic. So I think the trend I go back to what I said at the very beginning of this, uh, which is going to be apathy. I think we're going to see people getting more and more tired of stuff, anything. I think people are frankly exhausted of things going on around them, and it's going to get into people just wanting to focus on themselves. Uh, so I think that that's going to be the trend to look out for. The positive side of people wanting to focus on themselves, I do think will be how the workplace adapts. I think the way that we are looking at now adapting working weeks, adapting office time, and this is not just for people who are in jobs like this, but I think there is a move away to try and make workplaces more accessible. For people i think this is a good thing that we can be excited for uh you know people will not necessarily have to for example travel huge distances or people who have you know various uh you know any complications that could come with traveling to a lot of jobs i think there will be more allowances made and this connectivity that we spoke about will also extend to meetings with global leaders everything will become more efficient in a working sense or certainly sorry a lot will become more efficient. And then the one thing to worry about, I think is going to be isolationism. Uh, I think this vaccine nationalism that we have seen uh, sort of expanding since the very beginning of COVID where every single day was a comparative toll of how countries were doing. Every country wanted to say they were better than this country or this country was doing worse, you know, and we're still seeing it now, I think is going to develop a new, a new era of sort of competitiveness but not in the good way, in a real sense of national pride and competition. And if that is at the expense of other nations, then so be it. And I think that's that's going to be quite depressing to see in many situations. Yes, yeah, so national pride in everyone else being worse in a way that is really quite not brilliant. Um, Sir Michael. The trend, a revival of the notion of the West and of uh, transatlantic cooperation, the involvement of democracies around the world and Japan, we were despairing of that during the Trump years. And I think now we can see a degree of like-mindedness, potentially at least, enabling uh, much greater cooperation amongst uh, democracies 
um, than we had seen previously. Optimism, uh, rather similar to uh, Vic, that some of the better practices that have developed as a result of COVID may uh, continue. Uh, less unnecessary business travel with all the pollution and the climate effects that that brings, uh, more uh, varied uh, patterns of involvement with work, more childcare being available because it's indispensable in situations where people are working from home. The idea that there'll be some positive lessons learned from uh, COVID and pessimism over the quality of leadership and the great difficulty, not for anecdotal reasons, but for systematic reasons for attracting good people into politics. Great answer. Um, as some of you know, I had a crack at democratic politics um, in 2019, beginning of 2020. I'll be honest, I haven't thrown my hat back into it yet and it's quite nice not doing it. Um, that is fine for an individual fairly toxic if it's applied to an entire society and really worrying if it's applied to an entire planet. Uh, Joe. Um, in, in terms of trends, um, despite the uh, the looming uh, sovereign debt crisis that Anna's uh, given me nightmares about for the rest of the week, um, things go well after pandemics. Um, historically, looking back to the early 1800s, um, social More people change. are dead. More people are dead, but that does take the pressure off the system. Um, well, I'm just not sure whether that's going to be true this time around, if you certainly Possibly, but historic history tells us that it is, that there's social change, there's innovation, and there's economic growth following pandemics and wars. Um, the thing that I'm pessimistic about hasn't been mentioned tonight is that the inevitable and entirely necessary US withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban victory, um, the effects of that might be 5, 10, 15, 20 years away, but they're coming. Um, and the thing that I'm optimistic about is the science which has come out of COVID, particularly in terms of mnra uh, vaccines. Um, they, in 10 years' time, um, we could be getting vaccinated for everything from um, the common cold to to cancer. Um, and I think that the, the you know there's a hell of a lot of work that went in before COVID turned up, um, but the rapid escalation of, of vaccine research is, is going to change humanity. I think. Fantastic. Thank you so much to what has, I think has been a fantastic panel. Uh, Joe Stockman, Victoria Makanes, um, Michael Lee and Anna Bozovic. Really, really interesting discussion. Um, we will um, be having a PS1 board meeting to decide the future of PS21 uh, in 48 hours time. Um, you know, the, my hope is that we will be able to keep going. Um, as some of you know, uh, we have a call out moment for donations and we do cost money. Um, we, uh, But I think we've had a really interesting kind of um, Four months this year, uh, mainly uh, yeah, driven obviously by Lauren's coordination, um, where we've managed to deliver, I think, a really interesting series of um, online events. Um, we will continue to do those up until about the June point. We generally find that people aren't that bothered about PS1 over the summer. Uh, we might try and keep a couple of these sort of topical discussions going, particularly if we can make the podcast time life work, which I'm quite excited about with this one. I think this was a really interesting discussion. So when we do post it on social media, do please share with your friends, um, you know, animals and anyone else that you care about. Um, because I think this has been a really good one. I think if we can make that work, um, then that will be another really useful kind of vertical for, for, for PS21. But that's vertical is one too many buzzwords for the last bit of, um, uh, of, of, my, of, of my presentation. So at that note, we're going to move on. Um, I'll let you have the rest of your evenings back. Thank you. Huge thanks to all of our panelists.